0: jamie franklin hello matt what are we talking
1: about today today's subject is panspermia cool the interplanetary podcast the exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind your hosts here in london matthew russell and jamie franklin The beavers and butthead of the space world. Well, well. You know it, I know it, and that's not a bad thing. But
0: as you can hear, I've got a stinking cold as well, Jamie. It's not good, is it?
1: Oh. are you on the lemsips? I have
0: been having lemsips and Beechams just to, to make sure that everyone knows that there's other products
1: available. Do you know? I've often thought that those things don't actually do anything, but it just makes you feel better.
0: They really don't. They as
1: in, like you know, what's it called? The uh, placebo effect. Yeah, yeah that's, it. yeah. that's what. That's the word. I'm yeah, it, for. it
0: genuinely is because. All it is is ground-up paracetamol with a bit of lemon. ground-up sugar. <laughs> and Ground-up sugar. Yeah, so you can't, so you can't go to sleep yeah.
1: because your teeth itch. Anyway, It was like when I was a kid and my mum put a plaster on my sister's stomach because she had a tummy ache. Oh. She said she felt better. Oh, that's really cute. It's kind of cute, but, you know, she got ultimately busted. I don't care if she was two.
0: <laughs> I, I We need to start this, this week's show with a, uh, with a correction from the last show. Which was see, Matt? Are you are you telling me that we've got a we fact got a, wrong? a fact slightly wrong? We got it slightly wrong because let me tell you
1: something. I totally believe <laughs>
0: that. Well, I got I, I got an email from Paul Field th- oh, Field. I think his name is, and and he oh, says, yes. great show. I laugh and learn, which is pretty cool, isn't it? He calls us... Well, he definitely learns. (laughs) Well, I don't think he does because he's from the uh, Canadian Space Agency astronaut office. Oh, God, we're in uh, trouble. And he was there when Chris Hadfield flew his first flight. And uh, he was the first Canadian to operate the Canadarm on the shuttle at Mir. He grabbed the docking module, but he didn't bring the arm up. That's the mistake I made. I thought that the arm had come up with... With uh, Chris Hadfield, but no, it'd been it had gone up on a previous flight, and Chris Hadfield was just the first Canadian to operate it.
1: Okay, apologies. Yeah, Paul. and and it was Paul. Paul sounds like it, a legend. It, Can we get Paul we on the show? Definitely,
0: because he then goes on to say on STS 100, he hand too tall. Parasinsky installed the new space shuttle remote manipulator system, the SSRMS or Canadarm 2. We were embarrassed about the name. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
0: and then he goes on he, he, goes, he goes. on to say that uh, this had obviously been an upgrade so that they could grab a fully laden shuttle on the uh, ISS. He said it turned out to be unnecessary because Dan Brad- Brandenstein, the bum, <laughs> demonstrated on STS-49 <laughs> he could snuggle up the big ship to Intelsat 6 satellite and not crush his EVA crewmates. And Whoa. so, after that, management decided shuttle docking with the ISS was no biggie, and the arm stayed a Darm two, Chris Hadfield wanted to call Sequoia because it looked like a big
1: tree. I've always wanted to go to Sequoia National Park. I believe it's three hours north of Santa Monica in California. Yeah. If if you ever want to take me, <laughs> I will. Me. I will.
0: We'll we'll do that soon. Anyone? We'll do that soon. Okay. Or or any 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 of our listeners can take you on that little trip, Jamie. I like it. Uh. There's like there's too. one last thing because he says that the spar engineers working on the special purpose dexterous manipulator or SPDM or Speedum, mm-hmm. the little robot guy you could grab with the big arm, were actually were actually calling it the Spidum for a while. I was pushing for Speedy, says Paul, or Speedy so we got Dexter. So Dexter is the name of that little little. Dexter. Uh, wow.
1: Blimey. So, there we go. I love that. Thanks for getting in touch, Paul. And apologies for the mistakes. I mean, you know we only did it as a test. <laughs> we were just seeing who would write in. And, um, and well done I you. love
0: all those nicknames, though, of the various astronauts. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Brandenstein, the bum. <laughs> the bum. I <laughs> love that. Good. I might
1: start calling you the bum. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, no. I, we'll get onto to this in a second because... Uh, what are we talking about? I'm, I've got a quote. I've got a quote from a bloke called Donald Rolls Peaty, who was, in his day, in the early 20th century, the, the, the most widely read of all contemporary American nature writers. I suppose he was the, the uh, David Attenborough of... Uh, God, that's not of, a bad of, title, uh, is yeah. it? David Attenborough of America in the early 20th century. And he said this, a thing is either alive or it isn't. There is nothing that is almost alive. There is but the remotest possibility of the origin of life by spontaneous generation and every likelihood that Arrhenius is right when he dares to claim that life is a cosmic phenomenon, something that drifts between the spheres like light and like light transitly descends upon those fit to receive it. That's incredible.
1: What a so quote. That's, yeah, that's so... And what, what an American yeah, thank accent you, thank well. you very much. Again, again, strangely sounding <laughs> British. But I tell you what, that was beautiful. Thank you. And I wonder if Donald has a good or a voice as what? our very own Sir David Attenborough. Ooh. Probably, probably yeah, no one I sh- can. Yeah, I
0: should have done it can in a David Attenborough whisper. No one can. Um,
1: a thing is either alive or it isn't.
2: That's was actually
0: that? really good. I, I shut sh- my yeah. eyes for a second and I thought David Attenborough had barged you off your microphone.
1: And you were underneath a large sequoia holding a tiny tree frog. Oh,
0: if only David Attenborough did more space programs, how cool would that be? Oh, God, imagine uh. that.
1: Let's not get ourselves too excited. <laughs> hey, Matt. So,
0: why, we t- why, why that quote, Jamie? It's all about panspermia. And, and our special guest this week is the really, really quite famous.
1: Dr. Robert Zubrin, absolute legend. So I think we
0: should go to that interview post-haste, because that's why people are tuning into this episode, is to hear the man himself. So...
1: Matt, roll the panspermia tape. Right, we are here, ladies and gentlemen, with Robert Zubrin, uh, who is the founder and president of the Mars Society, and also a pioneer of astronautics. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, Matt, over to you.
0: Yeah, so Robert, I've been, uh, well, we've both been reading your really fascinating paper on interstellar communication using microbial data storage. Uh, and it's in this month's uh, Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. And it came through my door and I just thought, oh, wow, that is such a cool subject. So can you give us a uh, a quick intro to the idea?
2: Well, uh, the idea is that uh, you can record information in DNA And uh, not only that, once if you're sending that DNA inside a bacteria, they will replicate that information wherever they go, as it were, that uh, a bacteria habitable planet is essentially a receiver, and amplifier for this information, and that uh, such information can be in the form that for instance, the SETI people have been looking for various messages of, of a conventional nature uh, ranging from here's the value of pi. Now, you know, we're intelligent and here's a glossary of our language and so forth. Uh, or it can be in the form of um, here's what you, uh, traits you need to accept into your evolution uh, and thus. Uh, Infect another biosphere or create another biosphere and then infect it with uh, traits uh, that are presumably uh, like most propaganda designed to have the precip- recipient become more like you um, and uh, uh, so um, and then the qu- it became apparent to me that the design of craft for engaging in such transmissions is very simple and not terribly costly and that we could do it easily and therefore perhaps other people are doing it and have been doing it for some time Uh, and that perhaps this could have even have influenced the development of life on earth and if so how could we um, detect that
0: yeah, I mean, it's such it's such an enormous idea. Because when I first started reading the uh, paper, the idea seemed to be about really just communicating uh, across vast expanses of space and this whole idea that you could uh, harness the sun's energy to do this. Could you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of it?
2: That aspect of it uh, is, uh, uh, to a significant degree, not... Uh, a- Original with me. That is, in 1895, uh, a, a very great scientist, a Swede named Arhenius, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, came up with a theory that he called panspermia, where he realized all the way back then that sunlight had enough push that something as, as small as a bacteria would actually be ejected from the solar system by it and could be projected across interstellar space and thus bacteria could have been traveling across space for eons and may well have seeded life on Earth. So this theory was called panspermia. Now, uh, there's a couple of problems with Arrhenius' version of panspermia. One is that he believed that the universe had been around forever. Uh, he did not believe in a, like a Big Bang or anything of that sort, a finite time that it was created. And he said that life has been around forever. It just spreads in this way. And therefore, the question of the origin of life is meaningless. Uh, Now, that statement is extremely off putting to uh, origin of life researchers, uh, because it basically says there's no, you know, it's like finding the origin of time or or something where, you know, uh, but and then there's a third problem, which is that naked bacteria of the type that Arhenius looked at uh, would be very vulnerable to being killed by ultraviolet light in space. Not so much hard radiation, the cosmic rays. They could, they're could, bacteria that could withstand a million years worth of dose of cosmic rays that they would get in space. But the ultraviolet, if they were naked to it, could destroy them in hours um, so that they would not be able to fly across interstellar space completely unshielded. Now, However, if we modify this, first of all, if the bacteria were coated with suit, they would be shielded against ultraviolet. Uh, If we abandon this idea of a perpetual universe and simply say that um, transfers uh, simply broaden the boundary conditions for the origin of life, uh, that is, uh, we're not saying that life was always here and it's pointless to look into its origin, but we're simply saying that uh, we shouldn 't limit ourselves to conditions on the early Earth for trying to find out those conditions in which life originated, and there 's a lot of reason to believe that um, that life on Earth did not originate here. Um, I'll mention a few uh, We find no evidence of any evolution every, any evolutionary history of life on earth, a free living organism simpler than bacteria. they just appear and bacteria are, are much too complex to be the first uh, life. Uh, another thing is the fact that they can travel across space. That is, they are if they get a little bit of protection from ultraviolet, they can resist the cosmic radiation. If you can last a million years in space and you're traveling at 30 kilometers a second, which is the Earth's velocity around the sun, you could travel a hundred light years in a million years. And that uh, there's 10,000 stars within that distance of the Earth. So there's plenty of places they could have come from, why I believe they came from here. Third is there was an experiment done in the 1950s called the uh, Stanley-Urey uh, uh, experiment in which a um, graduate student named uh, Stanley uh, created test tubes that were filled with various gases and zapped them with electric sparks and lo and behold created amino acids, a very important chemical precursor of life. Now, people have objected to that experiment, saying, but those weren't the conditions that existed on the early Earth. Well, that doesn't make the experiment invalid, that makes the supposition that life originated on Earth suspect. Mm. It's like someone like you're saying, uh, you know, the North American Indians, many of them believe that they originated in North America through some process, whether from uh, other animals or clay, doesn't matter, okay? But uh, paleontologists, most of them believe that people originated evolving from higher apes, such as are found in East Africa. Now, if you adopt the, the a priori assumption that humans evolved in North America, then you're forced to discard the theory of evolution from apes. Saying, that couldn't have happened, there are no higher apes in North America, therefore the theory of evolution from higher primates is false. Instead, if you adopt the fact that there is significant evidence of humans evolving from uh, higher primates, then you say, well, the ones that we're closest to were in East Africa, so that's where we probably evolved, and then we spread elsewhere by traveling, okay? So uh, really, if you wanna find out where something originated, you wanna look for the place where its conditions for origin were most favorable, rather than, and then assume that it originated there and then traveled from there, Rather than assume that it originated where you are and then insist that whatever the process was, it must have been able to happen where you are.
0: There's, there's one really interesting aspect to this is when I first started reading it, like I said, I thought it was a way of communicating outwards rather than this whole idea of communicating inwards. If it was that mechanism of communicating outwards, what uh, advantage does it have over, say, radio waves?
2: I'm not ruling out the fact, uh, the idea, or the hope that there's someone out there broadcasting at us with radio waves. Um, And but this has been investigated now since 1960 without any positive results. And. Some of the uh, ideas that were advanced in 1960, for instance, was that they would be communicating with a frequency of radio known as S-band, which was quite popular at that time. And they came up with various reasons why this would be the favorite theory, uh, qu- frequency for interstellar communication. Uh, well, S-band is, no, is, is obsolescent today. We use uh, higher frequencies than that today. But, okay, let's cut it some slack. Let's say they use the frequencies we use today, X-band. Um, well, if you take, for instance, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which uses X-Band, and it can transmit to Earth uh, right now with, uh, uh, when it's close to Mars with a um, data rate of six megabits a second, okay, well, that's fine, that's great, uh, to a 70-meter dish, uh, and it's aiming at us, but there it is. It's a, I mean, it's a functioning system, it's practical. But if you put that out 10 light years away, a million-fold greater distance, the data rate would fall by a factor of a trillion. uh, And instead of uh, six megabits a second, it would be doing six microbits a second or 200 bits per year, which is ridiculous. Now you say, okay, well, we could use a much more powerful transmitter or they could use a much more powerful transmitter than the one on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So let's up its power from... 100 watts to a billion watts. Uh, so now somebody's spending a lot of money to try to spend us this message. Uh, they're they're you know, sending as much power as power as a major city to power this transmitter. And furthermore, we'll give them a 70-meter dish. Uh, so yes, you could transmit data that way, but think of the heroic effort that you're doing to try to transmit this data to someone who you don't even know exists or has the technology to hear you. Uh, you know, because you would need an X-band receiver. If someone had transmitted this data to us 100 years ago, we never would have noticed the message. Um, the the uh, because also we would have needed to have a 70 meter dish <laughs> pointed at them. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. So you know, we've had human civilization for 5,000 years. We've had complex life on this planet for 500 million years. You know, it's literally only in the past 50 years or so that if anybody had sent us this message and we had been pointed at the right direction, that we would have even known that it came. And furthermore, it's got very limited capacity. And so um, you say, well, if you're sending messages in this, uh, what would be a more practical way? And so in my paper, I use the analogy of, let's say you're trying to tell a story to the neighborhood children. Okay. You could walk onto people's front porches and tell the story, not knowing whether they're there or not, and walk from porch to porch, hoping that there might be children on that porch while you're telling the story. Or you could leave a copy of Harry Potter on the front porch. Yeah. Okay. And then they might come by later and pick it up and read it. And a lot of those things might get thrown out. It's true, but others might get circulated. And not only that, they might take it and show it to their friends. They might bring it to school.
1: Robert, talking of information, what would you, what would you think is the information that we have here on Earth that, that is worth broadcasting outside? And, and who would decide that?
2: Well, that, that's an interesting question. But to me, um, well, let's look at it this way. If you had an intelligent species and it did believe that the information worth broadcasting was how to become like it, okay? Mm-hmm. Then that's the species that would get spread around. yeah <laughs> Sure. So, sure. so from a Darwinian point of view, the the right information to be spreading is be like me, okay? Uh, it's to spread seeds. Uh, in other words, propaganda. In other words, if you are broadcasting to people who you don't know, okay. Uh, what are you trying to tell them are you broadcasting them starship plans okay i mean did we broadcast the soviets technical information on radio free europe no we broadcasted we are good you should want to be like us and they with the radio moscow broadcasted in a similar fashion okay that's propaganda well is very close to propagation yeah in meaning and so, and if we're talking in biology, okay, plants spread seeds. Uh, you know, uh and 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 life tries to spread itself around. So, if we say first of all this, okay. Spreading information using uh radio is very difficult as we've discussed. Now we could manufacture microscopic hard drives and have the sunlight push them into interstellar space, that is actual mechanical microscopic hard drives. It would be expensive, but I imagine we could figure out how to do it and hope that somebody finds those drives, figures out how to put them in a, a, a compatible computer, then reads our data. And then we send them a message saying, hi, we're from earth. Uh, here's the collected works of Shakespeare. I hope you find it impressive. Please send us some of your literature. Uh, you know. Uh, Sure. Uh, Or, I mean, you know, you see this kind of idea. This is the basic idea of the SETI people. This is, for instance, what is in the movie Contact. Um, Mm. And uh, Carl Sagan basically voiced variants of this. First, you send out something like, you know, here's the value of pi. And anybody receiving this realizes this is not random radio noise because it's systematic. And then you say, okay, now that you know we're intelligent, here's a simple glossary so you can understand our messages and somehow you build up a language and then you start sending them serious works of literature and history and science. Uh, and that's, that's one vision, but I don't think that that's terrifically convincing. Uh, I think be like us uh, is uh, a much more obviously practical thing to send to people you don't know. Uh, sure and uh and furthermore whether you like the ethics of that or don't it's pretty clear that from a darwinian point of view that is the right thing to do how do we how
0: do we start looking for these uh messages if 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 our earth and if uh, mars and all the other planets that we know of have been bombarded with alien extraterrestrial little dna packets how do we start going to look for these things and sift it out from the junk mail of our own uh geospermia.
2: Well, okay, first of all, there's some things we could do to falsify this hypothesis. Okay? Uh yeah. for instance, if we went to Mars and we found um that there was absolutely no life on Mars and never was, that would say that the first life that came from Earth did not come from space because the early Mars had very similar conditions to the early Earth, and if it came from space to Earth, it would have come to space from Mars, to to Mars. Okay, so that would falsify it. If we went to Mars and found that there was life, but has a different origin. In other words, doesn't use DNA and RNA. It uses some other method of recording genetic information, or uses a completely different set of amino acids. See, all Earth life uses RNA and DNA in the same set of amino acids. Okay, so we are all using the same alphabet and the same language. It's just we we it's different books that are being written. When you, okay, yeah. So what if Martian life is written in a different language? Uh, well that would say that would argue that would be strong support for the people who argue that life originated on Earth because if you could have a separate origin on Mars, that would mean that life originates from chemistry with very high probability, and we have two d- distinct and separate examples. That would also falsify the theory. Another thing that would falsify the theory up to a point is if we found life on Mars that was similar to Earth life but also includes prior examples, what I call pre-bacteria, that is free living life forms simpler than bacteria that exemplify the type of life that bacteria evolved from. That would say that life originated on Mars and then spread to Earth by local transmission, which is certainly possible. We get 500 kilograms of meteorites landing on Earth every year that were ejected from Mars by asteroidal impact, and many of this material has not gone through enough trauma to sterilize it. So if, if life did originate on Mars, it could have traveled here. Okay. Uh, but if all we find on Mars is life of the same design as Earth and with no pre bacterial evolution in evidence, that would be strong evidence supporting the theory that life came to both Earth and Mars from an outside source.
1: That's really interesting. So, Robert, sh- do you think that we should actually be starting our own deliberate program of panspermia?
2: Uh, I actually think yes. Uh, now, once again, there's a problem here, uh, which is that natural panspermia is possible, although difficult. That is well, relatively easy for Mars Earth, but to other solar systems, that's much further. But I, yet I do believe it's possible because uh, one of the most likely times for Earth to get bombarded by a heavy object is is when another star is passing close by and going through our Oort cloud and destabilizing their orbits, and so, Causing them to bombard us, and we're going through their ore cloud, and maybe in fact we're being bombarded by their ore cloud, and they're being bombarded by our cloud. It's like, you know, warships in the age of fighting sail. That you know, these frigates they had global range, but their guns could only for sailing, but their guns could only shoot a couple hundred yards. But they wouldn't fire their guns until they were a couple of hundred yards close to each other. Right? The, right. So, yeah. okay. So they're sailing all over and the time when they fire is when they're doing the close pass. So similarly stars and I, I, my calculations are just random motion of stars. Uh, we get a close pass about once every 20 or 30 million years, which by the way, is roughly the frequency of mass extinctions on earth. But, mm. yeah, uh, that's scary. But and, 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 and that's the best time for an exchange, a natural exchange. But, uh, So if you're looking for artificial though, uh, here's the thing, okay, if the bacteria are completely naked, they'll be killed by ultraviolet. Now they could get some shielding. I mean, if they're traveling in rocks from a meteoric impact, then they've got lots of shielding. If they're traveling without the rock, they might get some shielding from volcanic, from soot, because conceivably with an impact event, you have fires, you have soot in the air, and they, they might get covered with enough carbon to protect them. However, if we're talking about doing this by design, then it's a piece of cake, okay. That is, we could design just tiny. Uh, imagine a solar sail spacecraft that is 10 microns across. That is the sail diameter is 10 microns, and uh, and one micron thick, and it has a little capsule, maybe four microns in diameter, containing, uh, you know, a couple of microns of carbon shielding, and the inside of that, the rest of it is bacteria in a dormant state. That could that would be ejected from our solar system quite handily by sunlight. Mm. Um, you could you could make it stable by just shaping it like a badminton birdie, for example, or the or spin stabilizing it. And in other words, we could produce billions of these things in a factory, lift them to orbit. Well we would want to inject them into interplanetary space would be best, but okay that'd be easy enough to do. Anybody with space launch could do that. And then let them go and they'd go off in all directions propelled by the force of sunlight, and we could do it. Uh, And uh, from the point of view of survival of the terrestrial biosphere, one could imagine loading this with the genetic instructions, uh, as it were a micro arc for creating uh, a whole bunch of species that we have on Earth. Now, here's the thing. Okay. Bacteria. Well, actually, all cells have the DNA they actually use, and there's a whole bunch of extra junk DNA that they're not using. Okay, mm. uh, And for example, um, last year, these scientists took these uh, chick embryos and they activated certain genes. And when they were hatched, they had teeth, they had, which were like dinosaur teeth. Now, This is very interesting because this shows, we know that birds are descended from dinosaurs. So in a way, it's not too astonishing that they had in their junk DNA the files, as it were, on how to reassume their past career.
1: Mm.
2: In other words, you could get birds with teeth. If birds needed teeth to survive, if there was an evolutionary imperative, my guess is that it would not happen with the birds gradually evolving teeth from tiny teeth and small teeth and mediums and big teeth, that they could get it all at once. In other words, Just like me, okay, right now I'm a businessman. Before that, I was an engineer working for a large company. Before that, I was a school teacher. Before that, I was a taxi driver. If my company folded, I could go back to work for a big company as a corporate engineer. If I couldn't do that, I could find work as a public school teacher. And if I couldn't do that, I could be a taxi driver. I know how to do all those things, past incarnations of myself. And I think that all species have that data and we can even see it. Like if you look at any mammal in its uh, embryonic stage, it manifests fish characteristics like gills. We can, you can just, you can see it. And this has been known since the 19th century. And a famous scientist, uh, Hackle, I think it was, uh, said uh, phylogeny, I don't know, whatever the hell it was. He meant that evolution uh, re or, or embryology recapitulates the evolutionary history of the species, okay, that you can actually see in its development these earlier stages. Now, so mice have fish genes, okay, in them, all right? And, uh, but now here's the question, do fish have mouse genes? Yeah. That is, (laughs) uh, now uh, we have no data right now to show that they did, but what if we took a look? What if we started looking at the junk DNA Of various species on Earth, and we found in the more primitive varieties the plans, as it were, for things that evolved from them subsequently. Okay, now this smacks of evolution by design, but if those are the facts, those are the facts. Okay, are those genes there or not? Let's have a look. Uh, Now, Here's an example for you where that would actually be true. If you take the North American Mustang, okay, the wild horses of the American West, okay, a naive biologist might assume that these evolved in that environment. They are well adapted for it. It doesn't seem to pose any serious uh, um, paradoxes to, for Darwinism to assume that the Mustangs evolved in, in the, the American West. Uh, but they didn't. They actually, the horses of the American West, are descended from horses that escaped from the Spanish conquistadors. And those horses were not horses ideally adapted to the American West. They had been bred by Europeans for carrying armored knights. Mm. So my guess is that if you went through the genome of the Mustang, you would find genes that would allow you to rapidly recreate heavily muscled horses, of that the mustangs were, are descended from, which they would have had no reason to be as wild horses in the American West. These slower, heavy horses for carrying armored knights. This is not the ideal adaptation for a free life on the Great Plains. Okay, but that history is there. Okay, so. The mustangs are a locally adapted species that does have a history of intelligent design in its past. Okay, now, so what I'm saying is this: Uh, if somebody, let's say somebody wanted to create uh, the kind of biosphere that we have, and uh, now it could have all been in with, with the initial instructions. Uh, or a successive wave of instructions could have arrived over time, okay, uh, or they could all be in the initial instructions, but our biosphere was only able to pick up on them after it had developed to a certain point. I mean, imagine you're a parent trying to uh, improve the intellectual development of your infant child. Now, you might put in the nursery Uh, um, letter blocks, you know, blocks with the alphabet on them. You might put in picture storybooks. you might put in children chapter books like Harry Potter, and you might put in great works of literature like War and Peace. Now, when the child gets to be around two years old, it knows how to play with the letterbox and can actually learn something from them letter blocks. When it gets to be four or five, it can start appreciating the picture book. When it gets to be seven or eight, it can start appreciating the chapter book, and when it gets to be 16, it can read literature. Hmm. Um, the, uh, but what I'm saying is that if you find letter blocks in the nursery, that indicates um, forward-looking thinking. Okay, Certainly, if you find the chapter book or the, and so forth, that it, somebody has got a plan for this kit, All right. Um, Now, so this is another way one could pursue this. We could do uh, DNA analyses and look at the junk DNA that is being carried around by various organisms and see if uh, any of it is forward looking in its character. Now you do have some risk here because let's say you did find mouse genes in a fish, maybe those genes were carried to it from mice by bacteria, hmm. okay uh because bacteria can go into the fish and and yeah you know, form a transmission, so you'd have to figure out how to sort that out but uh but I would imagine if you found not just the mouse genes for particular traits but the whole plan and the whole plan for everything in between the fish and the mouse, that would be very strong
0: uh, absolutely so i mean uh in your in your conclusion to the uh the paper you suggest a man trip to mars uh what what's your sort of main reasoning behind this
2: well there are two reasons i mean with respect to this issue it's scientific that is if we go to mars we could attempt to falsify this theory in the way that i described earlier you know uh if um Okay. Once again, no life on Mars or a separate origin on Mars or a prior origin on Mars would all falsify this. Um, but equal uh, life on Mars, same life on Mars as on Earth at the microbial level, with the same starting point, would suggest a common origin from outside the solar system. Uh, the uh, But... Uh, so that that would be that. Of course, there's other reasons to go to Mars besides this. The the main reason to go to Mars is to create a second home for humanity. To you know the, the Mar okay Mars is uh, a terrific object of scientific interest, but it's more than that. It's a new world. So uh, there are reasons that go beyond this to go to Mars.
0: So yeah, that that actually leads me to a question that I ask all our guests: is um, Do you think we should be putting all our resources in getting back to the moon? Or do you think we really should be putting all our resources to do manned missions to Mars now?
2: Well, uh, I think we should set the goal of humans to Mars and it should be set on a relatively near term schedule, such as getting there in a decade, because if you set it for two decades, it basically means you're not going to do anything now. And that means that a decade from now, it will still be two decades out. Okay. If, if Kennedy had said, let's go to the moon by the year 2000, we still wouldn't be there. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, But I do think that if we did have a humans to Mars program, we could use a subset of that hardware to also establish bases on the moon. And we should. Actually, it
1: was interesting, yeah. Robert. I was re- rereading your book and um, you mentioned about real estate on Mars. And obviously this book was written in, was it 96?
2: The Case for Mars
1: was written in 96
2: and then an update in 2011.
1: Right. I think I must have, I bought it in a secondhand bookshop. I think I must have the early one. But you mentioned there about real estate and, uh, you know, you you think that it can be, land can be bought and sold uh, pretty soon. Is there actually any more talk about people buying more land or has that already happened?
2: Oh, well, there may be people who claim to have sold land on Mars, but right. they didn't have title to it. I think uh, in order to really sell land on Mars, we need to create a legal regime that allows that to occur. Um, and then, yes. Now, you know, people were buying and selling great pieces of land in, say, Kentucky or Ohio. Uh, in the period prior to the conclusions of the French and Indian Wars. In in Mm other words, a period in which Britain, France, and Spain were all had contesting claims for this territory. And nevertheless, people did buy from either the British crown, the French crown, Spanish crown, various land claims on the assumption that those political entities would prevail. Uh, The British prevailed and some of those claims were honored by the American government that succeeded it. but Nard, you you can have a certain speculative claim, uh, speculative value to land even in advance of clarity on this issue. Um, the you know I think that ultimately the people that will sell land on Mars will be you, you know the Free Martian Republic, the local authority on Mars. Mm. Uh, I think that certain land will be much more valuable than others. For example, if land is over a source of geothermal power, that'd be much more valuable than something that's just inert. Uh, um, So I think it's going to take a while before we can sell land on Mars and finance things on Mars. But once you have a Mars base or Mars colony, it may be able to get substantial funding by selling land. The early American, you know, the United States. After the signing of the Constitution, had massive debts from the uh, Revolutionary War, and uh, the uh, and there were some people that said we should just do the Third World thing and repudiate the debt. Alexander Hamilton said no, we're not going to repudiate the debt at all. We're going to pay it off, and here's how we're going to pay it off: we're going to sell land in the West. And they, they passed the Northwest Territories Act, and within ten years they had raised enough money to completely pay off the debt. And the credit of the United States has been pretty sound ever since
1: absolutely. Well, I wonder when it all starts to happen, Robert, if you can put a good word in for me to get a nice one bedroom apartment somewhere up there
2: okay, sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> with, with, with this idea of panspermia i just i I do worry because this is actually such a profound idea that life originated outside of the solar system and the and and the that these tiny little uh visitors these tiny little book bacteria that are giving us instruction to become essentially an extraterrestrial uh if that stuff's on mars isn't planetary protection now something that you, that should be absolutely top of the agenda because we wouldn't want to destroy the evidence for something so profound uh,
2: no um if Look, the question of of life on Mars is, is there any life on Mars that is different from Earth life? And we could easily distinguish between Earth life and something that isn't. You know, back in 2001, you may remember we had this anthrax scare in the United States. And not only were they able to tell that there were microorganisms in the envelope, they were able to tell that it was anthrax, a particular strain. And not only that, it was of a strain that... Um, came from a research lab in Ames, Iowa, and which, furthermore, they could say with confidence, had been removed from Ames, Iowa in 1987. So, Mm. okay, so in other words, (laughs) microorganisms aren't generic. If we, you know, if you find the kind of E. coli that are common in Florida, currently on Mars, you know, you brought it. Right. Okay. Uh, But, If it has a separate origin from Earth life, it's not going to be identical to current species on Earth. And the planetary protection, though, you see, has become so... Uh, uh, constraining that it is crippling the search for example they forbade the curiosity rover from going over to this place where there were water seeps in evidence on mars it's like saying we can only go to the uninteresting places on mars
0: <laughs> i mm. i did read about that one and i always thought it was really curious because yeah you're absolutely right it does kind of stop you from going to <laughs> the interesting places because you kind of think well what's curiosity rover doing on mars if it's not to do something as profound as go over to somewhere where there's water but
2: Right, and then of course, human exploration is completely impossible if we had planetary protection because you can't guarantee that they won't crash, and if they crash, you scatter a biota all over the landscape.
0: It is amazing. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting paper, and I and I read.
2: Well, thank you. And uh, the paper's in the journal, of the British Interplanetary Society, and I I hope you'll po- post a link to it with this podcast or, or something, uh, so people can read it.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Me for sure, will we want to spread the word? All what right. can spur me of the word, as they
2: say. <laughs> All right. OK. Thanks Thank so much, you. Thank you very
1: much, Robert. It's the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back, back into space. space.
0: How ace to speak to Robert Zubrin.
1: You know, I read, Matt, I read the case for Mars a couple of years ago. <laughs>
0: By the way, I like, I like um, the fact that you oh. owned up, that you didn't buy his book new, that you bought it from a second-hand shop.
1: No, I was, contr- I was contributing to charity. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I think he'd be happy with that. Um but I mean I absolutely love the book. His writing and his his way of explaining stuff is pretty encyclopedic. Uh, he's amazing.
0: Yeah. In the paper that's in the Jbis. So I mean it, it was because I was excited because it, it popped through my door the other day, the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society that you can only really get uh-huh. if you're a member, but I will put a link to the um to Jbis so that you can Uh, download this particular article Uh, I think you have to pay for it but you probably can see the abstract for it Um, but it's it's well worth it's well worth getting this copy of James. it's
1: really well worth it and actually what I would do is and we'll put a link up to this um, but it would be great to read it and then go back and listen to the interview because I mean it really is Quite far out, isn't it, Matt?
0: What's really funny is I've been using the expression as rare as hen's teeth all week. <laughs> mm, and then, good one, And Matt. then it turns out that uh, that obviously chickens have got dinosaur teeth in their DNA, and, and you can do a few tweaks, and they, they grow these teeth back, as Robert pointed out. Ah!
1: It's just mind-blowing. Yeah, so... Uh, Matt, I, li- I quite like the phrase, rare as rocking horse.
0: Yeah, that's a good oh. one. That's a good one. That's always a good one.
1: I like yep. that. So fill the blanks. Uh, uh, Matt, have we got astronaut of the week? We have. Q music. It's time for astronaut of the week. Uh, it's all going to be. It's all going to be jinglized. Well, it's a homage to one of our favourite podcasters, Adam Buxton, who's yeah, a legend, he totally is. and he does some of the greatest jingles ever. Yeah. So if we can be half as good as him. I'd be well happy.
0: Michael Bloomfield. MB. On Monday, it will be 20 years ago to the day that he flew his first
1: flight into space. Incredible stuff. Who is Michael Bloomfield? Let me tell you. Let's start off where he was born. He was born in Flint, home of the Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah, what a band. And he was born uh, March the 16th, 1959 and raised near Lake Fenton, Michigan. Yep. so he's a Michigan man.
0: Uh, that's another good album, isn't it? Old Sufjan Stevens.
1: Yes, love Sufjan.
0: He got his bachelor's degree in 1981 from the US Air Force Academy in engineering mechanics. But the, the really interesting bit about this is, is he he was the captain of the football team there, American football, of course. Was yeah, he? captain of the football team. And his coach, and I love this name, Dwayne Charles Bill Parcels, a.k.a. The Big Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. How cool have you got to be to have a nickname like tuna. the big tuna? The big,
1: you know that they pronounce it yeah, tuna as well. Big the, tuna. Big tuna. He's wow. the big
0: tuna. Tuna.
1: And head coach of the NFL for nineteen seasons. Yep. So,
0: so he's obviously an, an excellent uh, American football player, and uh, hopefully he didn't get any brain damage or uh, like they're discovering at the moment, which is pretty horrific for the NFL. Absolutely. Uh, he then went on to become an F fifteen fighter pilot. Uh, and uh, he he was based in New Mexico, Germany, Virginia, uh, and he graduated from FWIC, which is the Fighter Weapons Instructor Course.
1: I really want to do a course at FWIC.
0: Yeah, that would be cool, wouldn't it, to be uh, a graduate level instructor course so you can fly your plane and shoot missiles. Oh, yes! <laughs> and then,
1: I just need to learn how to fly planes first. And, and apparently this is quite
0: rare. He then went on to become a... After d- doing FWIC, he then went on to become a test pilot of F-16s. Distinguished graduation at uh, Edwards Air Force Base as a test pilot. Standard. Standard. Uh, so he's obviously a pretty amazing F16 pilot.
1: Uh Yeah, not too shabby. Not too
0: shabby. Uh, then he went and got a masters in engineering management in 93 from Old Dominion University. And um that looks like the alumni is very sport and military orientated.
1: So he went on to be selected by NASA in 1994, reporting to the Johnson Space Center in 1995 to oversee various aspects of shuttle
0: operations. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is like the sort of safety aspects of it, which will, which I think he'll return to a little bit later on in his career. So, what mm. was his first flight?
1: Well, it was obviously aboard the STS-86 Atlantis. Oh,
0: he was the pilot, nonetheless. Um, yeah, that, that Atlantis, it was the last flight for a while because, yeah, it went off and got refitted and was all kind of jazzed up. Glass cockpit. Where did he fly to?
1: Well, docked with the Mir, of course.
0: And we've talked about this flight before, because it is the flight that took Michael Fole, Brit, Brit yes. Michael Fole, on his fourth flight. Uh, it also took up the Space Hab, but uh, yeah, d- uh, visited Mir. Uh, and we talk about that mission on episode thirty-five because it's the one where Michael Fole manages to stick his thumb against the window and rescue the Mir space station by, <laughs> yeah,
1: incredible scenes. <laughs> looking at the stars. So get back and listen to thirty-five yes, for brilliant. a
0: recap. Yeah, just to see what a legend Michael Fole is. Uh, but we're talking about Michael Bloomfield. That must have been confusing exactly. having a couple of Michael's on the on, yeah, the, I on the shuttle.
1: Do you reckon one of them was called the Bum and the other one was called the Big tuna? just to make it easy? Then what, then
0: what did he do? Then, then what was his next little trip into space?
1: So he piloted the 101st Space Shuttle Mission STS-97 Endeavour oh. in 2000 to ISS installing the first US solar arrays and docking port for the Destiny module.
0: So those are the really big large solar panels that you see on the on this space station now so that that they were the first like really big u.s ones actually they're not the same ones because they replaced them but 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 the really cool bit that he did so he's the pilot on that and uh, when they detached from the space station he he took the shuttle tail first and did a big hour-long round trip around the station inspecting it obviously, to make sure it's all cool. And were, there's lots of cool pictures from that. So th- that's what he did. Mm. He did a kind of tail first, loop the loop of the space station before flying back down to Earth. Incredible
1: scenes. Uh, so he went on to command the STS-110 Atlantis in 2002 using the upgrade Block two engines. My personal favourite, as yeah. you know. <laughs> well, absolutely. Again, the interna- to the International Space Station, Ellen Ock, is it Ockoa? So it's Ellen
0: Ellen Ockoa. Is she's pretty high up at NASA these days? So
1: well, it was her. It was her final flight. Mm -hmm. um, And Jerry Ross became the first person to travel to space seven times, installing the backbone of the ISS S zero truss,
0: which is literally the main bit that holds everything. Like me with this podcast, you you are the backbone. I'm the rock. Well, I don't know why I'm laughing at that, because it's, it's, you know, in every way, it's, it's true. Yeah, it's a big, di- big diss, but, you know, it's true. No, yeah. Do you know, each of those missions, the Space Shuttle flew, how far do you reckon?
1: Oh, I'm going to take a guess here. 4.49 million miles.
0: Do you know what? That's pretty bang on. Yeah? Sometimes it was 4.3, sometimes it was 4.5 million miles. So, I reckon Good. he's thr- flown about 13.5 million miles. Jeez. But put that into perspective, that's a third of the distance to Mars when it's at its closest. So it's not bad, is it? It's not bad he's at done, all. He's done a long way. Yeah. When he stopped flying, he became the Deputy Director of Flight Crew Operations at Johnson. And then he, became, uh-huh. he left uh, NASA and became the Vice President of the Constellation Programme for ATK, which we'll mention in the news a little bit later. Um, uh, the Constellation Programme, of course, turned into SLS and Orion, uh, and was mm. that was cancelled, and then uh, nowadays he works as the vice President and general manager of houston based Oceaneering Space Systems, which is actually a big deal it 's a massive company that developed technologies for working in space and other harsh environments and always nice. wins like all these NASA Health and Safety Awards, although they really? call them Safety and Health Awards. I don't know if that's an American thing, but...
1: They call them Healthy and Safe Awards? No,
0: Safety and Health, not Healthy and Safe. <laughs> 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 oh, goodness Did, is, is that what, what I said? Is that what I said? I
1: don't know. Oh, we'll actually, to, Jamie, have I have back. to
0: apologise. If you listen back to that... Um, Uh, the last podcast you did indeed get the numbers correct when when it was backwards (laughs) did i yeah you did and uh, lots of listeners uh, wrote in to complain
1: they were complaining that you were bullying me even when i was right i bullied you live on the podcast how grim is that it's just what i'm used to sorry jamie it's all right accepted
0: as a personal note he's married to a lady called laurie miller and they have two children he enjoys reading gardening and all sporting activities and
1: any activity with his children. Matt, that sounds like the you know the bit at the end of your C V mm-hmm. when you have to put, you know, what hobbies you enjoy. Yeah, and everyone what always do you puts put? reading, sports, <laughs> working with others, you know. Uh, I'm uh, a great team player. Yeah. And no, I work you know well I under pressure. Yeah, do you know what I say when they say what would you say your biggest weakness is? Do you know what I say? Acne. I always <laughs> <laughs> I have not got acne. Uh, I always say, um, I'd probably say I'm a bit too competitive. <laughs> because my thought is that they would think, oh okay, so he's very oh, tenacious. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's a good weakness to have.
0: I'm prob mine is yeah. I'm probably just ever so slightly conceited.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a little bit dangerous around people. Yes. <laughs> My only yeah. weakness is uh,
0: occasionally I commit murder.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'd uh, uh, love to see that. I'd love you, to see that, the, that on
0: a CV. That's the sort of thing you do when you're on job seekers' allowance and you don't want to get the job that they say. Yeah, sent you exactly.
1: To. You've got to go for the interview, but you can't quite get the job. <laughs> um, so Matt what news have we got What well, the news What's been going on
0: in space <clears throat> So space news tomorrow is the autumnal equinox Ah uh, what does that mean please Well for American and uh, listeners that's the fall the uh, sort of September equinox I think they call it Yes And it and it marks the day where where the earth's tilt basically means that you it, it, it evens out so that uh, you get 12 hours of night and twelve hours of day, uh, really? yeah. And so, Beautiful. yeah. So the September equinox occurs the moment the sun crosses the celestial equator, the imaginary line in the sky above Earth's equator from north to south. And it can happen on September the twenty second, twenty third, or twenty fourth. But it is twenty second. It happens this year on the twenty second. Uh, but to be honest, it depends where you are in your latitude about whether that where where actually it falls actually. So it may happen a few days before, or a few days after, because of actually because of the refraction
1: of the sunlight due to the atmosphere. Do you know what around this sort of time is when uh, rest her soul, my sweet old grandma would always say, "Nights are drawing in." Ah, oh, they are though. Yeah. This Dra- is... Drawing in. What does drawing that mean? In. Drawing in. Nights
0: are drawing in. Do you want to know an interesting fact? So, so, so yes, tomorrow is do I? Well, obviously, So tomorrow is the first day of autumn or the fall. Yeah. But an interesting fact is the full moon closest to the September equinox is called the yeah. Harvest Moon.
1: Oh, I love that. And you know why I love that, Matt, don't you? You know I'm a big Neil Young fan. Ah, there you go. Harvest being one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Yeah, it's
0: very good. It is very good. Uh, but the weird thing about the Harvest... Oh, all-
1: man, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you. I need a full moon closest to September equinox.
0: You actually sound better than uh, <laughs> Neil Young. Sorry, Neil, if you're listening. Neil won't be listening because we're not doing it in high enough quality audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, So and definitely we're not We're, won't be we're not listening. available on Neil Young's... T- this is so uh, lo-fi. Yeah, it's too lo-fi for him. It's MP3. You can only listen at 48-bit, 96 kilohertz. Job done. Mm. Anyway... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing about the harvest moon is that um, it actually comes up 30 or 40 minutes later on each day, which is much shorter than the time it normally uh, rises, which is normally 50, ma- 50 minutes later each day.
1: Is that why around this kind of time, I actually I get up later by that, the same times? No, it's probably, yeah, you're probably being affected by the moon. 50 minutes later each day, that's how I go until about March.
0: Something else is really exciting happening uh, tomorrow as well, or tonight, cool. is OSIRIS-REx. And uh, OSIRIS-REx is a spacecraft that is going off to an asteroid called Bennu to go round and study it. So it's the uh-huh. latest of all these really cool uh, spacecraft. Uh, but it's uh, on its way, it's doing a slingshot of Earth, and tomorrow is that slingshot. Uh, and so this cool. Range Rover-sized vehicle is uh, coming back to Earth and it's going to slingshot around Earth's south pole going over Australia for a gravity assist. Uh, But the weird thing about it is, I I didn't realise, it's going 19,000 miles an hour when it does this. Uh, And it's going into an area that's usually quite densely populated with satellites. So NASA have had to kind of um, do quite a few steps to make sure that no collisions are going to happen. So what kind of
1: things is it going to be studying, do we know? So, So that we learn more about asteroid Bennu. I wonder if it's housing, Matthew, any precious metals that we can mine with our mining company. Oh, I'm
0: sure it will. I'm sure it will. And we'll be off yeah. there to mine it soon.
1: <sighs> will we ever.
0: So it'll get there in October 2018 after making this. It's a bit more of a sort of course correction to get it in the right plane of the... Uh, uh, so right. so it's, it, I think it has to shift its orbit by 6.2 degrees or thereabouts to get in the, in the same plane as Bennu. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Orbital ATK, which our Astronauts of the Week uh, worked for at one point. Uh, Northrop Grumman are purchasing it. So it's going to merge. We're going to get a a huge space merger. And that that deal is worth about $9 billion in cash. Northrop Grumman. What a name. Uh, And one thing that we won't cover here in great detail, because we have talked about uh Cassini in great deal on episode thirty three. Uh but of course we said goodbye to Cassini.
1: I know. Let's shed a satin shaped tear yeah, for the one and only. It ha
0: I lastly I, it said it's gotta be one of the most successful uh <laughs> missions of all time, hasn't it?
1: Oh, it's been absolutely mind blowing. Incredible stuff.
0: Uh before we have our space fact, I better I better just quickly say what's going up in the sky. Go on then. So uh Today or tomorrow, we've got a Soyuz which is carrying their um, Glonass M, which is part of its um, um, global positioning system, and mm. then we've got a couple of Atlas fives in it, two in a row. Uh, we've got we've got an Atlas five which is going to ha- which is going to have the five foot fairing and four solid rocket boosters. The big boy nice. is a big one carrying enroll forty two, which is um, a secret satellite. Military Boy, thing. Kid. And then another one, the Atlas Five Four Two One, which is four-foot f- fairing and two solid rocket boosters. It's carrying Enrol 52. Whoa. Yours and my favourite, a Proton.
1: Oh, yes. Finally.
0: Beautiful-looking rocket with a Breeze M upper stage. Uh-huh. Is going to be carrying AsiaSat 9. And we've also got the Europeans in action with Ariane 5 carrying an Intelsat 37E and BSAT 4A. And that's all in the next week, so that's quite a lot of rocket launches, isn't it?
1: So much better than BSAT 3A. Oh yeah, that
0: that was that was a stinker. That was whack. So space fact, Jamie, and I like lo- <laughs> I like lo- I like this space fact. So I'm gonna criticize it at the end though. Ready? Go on then. Just a pinhead amount of the sun's raw material could kill a man from 160 kilometres away. Could it kill a woman too? Well, let's break this down. I like this space fact because, obviously, the the sun is pretty deadly. It is. The sun is a deadly laser. Have
1: you forgotten to take your pills?
0: The kids out there will get that reference. Exactly how big is a pinhead, Jamie?
1: Well, we're talking... It's small. We're talking a few millimetres, yeah. It could be like double
0: the size depending on the type of pin, couldn't it? It could. And yet, yet they've been really um, specific with 160 kilometres away. I mean, I can understand if they said 150 kilometres, but why 160? Yeah. But what kills them? Don't even say, what kills the person? What, what actually kills the person? Radiation? Heat? What? Yeah, I don't it would know. be good to know. It would be good to know. So, if anyone knows where this fact comes from, just a pinhead amount of the sun's raw material could kill a man from 160 kilometers away.
1: This is your homework. You need to tell us exactly how it would kill
0: you. Yes. Yeah, so keep those uh, brilliant letters coming in. If you've got any more nicknames for astronauts, that would be fantastic. For us. I really, yeah, nicknames for us would be brilliant. I want to be called something like the Big Tuner.
1: No, you don't get to choose. Oh, Our listeners damn, get to choose. Damn, damn. I
0: said like, I so, didn't say um, the big tuna because that would be the same as a football something coach. Something like yeah. that. So, like the big bass man or something like that. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's <laughs> all we've got. The big car. That's all we've got time for this week, Jamie.
1: Ah oh, well, I've had a great I've, time, had Matt. A, and, had um, a I hope time. your cold gets better. Yes.
0: And Jamie, we, we should announce that we, we, we're going to go back to weekly podcasts once, we, once we've cleared our we're decks gonna, a little bit.
1: We're going to give it a go. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're both very busy, but we understand the absolute crazy demand to go back to weekly. I'll tell you
0: what so Jamie we are we, going to ESTEC in October. So we, we should, we we should have some brilliant interviews at that. And Big uh, time. and we're also we've got an amazing special guest in November.
1: We have we're going to say nothing.
0: Just so excited about it, it's unreal. And uh, thanks very much for uh, bearing with us in this sparse period of planetary podcasting. Uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs>